Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Greyhound dogs are born to run. You can see it in the majestic fluidity of their gait as they head around a racetrack. But that's all most of us see. We don't say where they live, we don't see how they live, and we don't see what happens to them should they get hurt or sick. And that's why in 2018, this sport is having its own day of reckoning. Dog racing, a sport that once packed the track every day with a who's who of local society, is now having the very legitimacy of its existence put into question, and more importantly, on a ballot. Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPN's John Barr and Tanya Malinowski as we talk about the balance between economics and cruelty. Now we present Greyhound Racing's Biggest Test by John Barr and Tanya Malinowski. Loxahatchee Groves, Florida. Sonia Straitman's greyhounds come bounding out to greet and paw visitors when she opens the door to a concrete slab porch on a muggy September morning. So many dogs live in the house that she and her daughter, Alexandra, can't immediately agree on a number. We think 15, Straitman says. Another seven live in a kennel behind the home, which sits on five acres about a half hour northwest of Palm Beach. Straitman says she got the dogs primarily from greyhound racing owners and trainers during the years she was willing to keep their secrets. No longer silent, Straitman has become one of the most vocal supporters of Constitutional Amendment 13, which would phase out greyhound racing in the state by the end of 2020, though tracks could continue to do business as poker rooms. To pass, the amendment needs 60% of the November 6th vote. Florida, with 11 of the nation's 17 remaining Greyhound racetracks, is the sport's epicenter, making the ban a potentially fatal blow to an industry that has already seen annual betting receipts drop from $3.5 billion in 1991 to around $500 million today. The election shapes up as a battle between Greyhound owners and trainers who fear for their livelihood and activists who say the vote is a watershed moment for animal protection. Straitman, who's 46, says she's taken in and adopted out more than 2,300 racing greyhounds since 2003. Hundreds of them, she says, had broken bones, and some came with yellow-stained fur from lying in their own urine in crates. She decided to speak up in late 2017 when she took in three racing greyhounds with broken legs in the span of 10 days. Then there was Bart. Now 85 pounds and with a jet black coat, Bart is noticeably bigger than the other greyhounds in her care, but his history becomes apparent as he moves with a labored gait among the mango and tropical almond trees on her property. A day after Christmas 2017, in the 13th race at Palm Beach Kennel Club, Bart was in the lead pack heading into the back turn when racing greyhounds routinely reached speeds in excess of 40 miles per hour. He appeared to get tangled up with another dog and went down in a heap, tumbling several times. His back right leg was shattered. We saw the bone sticking out of the skin, Straitman says, recalling the first time she saw Bart at the veterinarian. They didn't treat him with anything because they were taking him in to kill him, she adds. Bart had competed for Raider Racing, run by noted trainer Norm Raider and his wife Yong. 
It's been one of the most successful racing operations at the Palm Beach Kennel Club over the past two decades. Without the knowledge of Raider Racing, and with the help of another Greyhound adoption agency, Straitman rescued Bart from euthanasia. Raider did not respond to multiple interview requests from outside the lines, but he said through a track spokesperson that he did not take Bart to the vet to be put down. A plate and 13 screws were required to hold Bart's broken leg together. For eight months, he could hardly leave his crate. Nearly a year later, and after more than 100 vet visits, the three-year-old still walks with a noticeable limp. For years, Straitman took dogs from the Palm Beach Kennel Club, like Bart, and accepted an average of $12,000 a year from the track to help cover vet bills. The payment stopped when she became a more vocal critic of the sport on social media and made it clear to track officials she would no longer quietly accept injured dogs. I went from going along to telling the track, I don't care about your money, she says. Everything about the Palm Beach Kennel Club feels like an anachronism. Even the sign at the entrance looks like a relic from 1960s Las Vegas, a kitschy outlier amongst the sprawl of modern development that has grown up around it. From the grandstand, a row of stately palms and 25-foot arborvitae hedges frame the background of the track. They've been there since 1932 when the club opened and immediately became the place to see and be seen in the palm beaches. The Paddock Room restaurant overlooks the track's first turn. It's mostly empty now, but if you let yourself imagine this room in its glory days, you can almost see the late Art Rooney Sr., founding owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, at his favorite table in the far right corner, his back to the wall, smoking a cigar, and watching the dogs as a steady stream of friends and businessmen stop by. Rooney, who's still referred to affectionately here as the Chief, bought the Palm Beach Kennel Club in 1970 after years of visiting the track on his drive back to Pittsburgh from Miami, where he bet the horses at Hialeah Park. Teresa Hume is the director of publicity now, but she was a server in the paddock room when she started in 1980. She remembers some 7,000 to 8,000 people coming through the track on peak days in the early 1990s. Today, a good day brings a 1,000. Back in those days, this track would be packed, says Joe Rooney, who started as a restaurant prep cook the same year Hume arrived. He's since taken over the track ownership from his grandfather, who died in 1988. You would have to know somebody to get a reservation in the paddock room, Joe Rooney says. The decline is evident in the grandstand, where a few patrons, mostly men, mostly older, gather around a simulcast from another track in between post times. It's a quiet scene, save for the same booming announcement for the faux rabbit lure that has preceded the starting bell for decades. Here's Rusty. Even with nostalgic touches, the scene feels far from the pageantry of the past. George Webb, 89, and his wife Mary, who's 72, have been coming to the track at least five times a week for the past 23 years. A worker at the betting window knew where to find them at a table near the deli in the air-conditioned section of the main grandstand. Mary says she and her husband plan to vote no on Amendment 13. It would be getting rid of one of the things that a senior citizen can do to stay active, she says, and she dismisses complaints about animal abuse. Accidents happen, 
But it's not because anyone is mistreating the dogs or anything like that, she adds. Likewise, Joe Rooney says the claims are a gross exaggeration of a few incidents. Why would you mistreat what's making your living, he asks. He blames the decline in track attendance. He estimates it at roughly 6% per year, mostly on the rise in simulcasting and online betting. Most people who wager on greyhound racing today do so from the comfort of their own homes. There's literally no denying statistically that greyhound racing is in decline, he says. If racing made no financial sense, I'd stop doing it. But I'd rather do that on a market-driven decision, not one imposed upon us. The amount wagered annually on Florida greyhound races has dropped from $406 million in fiscal year 2007-08 to $226 million in 2016-17 according to the state agency that regulates racing. But there's one area of the club where in-person business is booming. Behind a pair of tinted doors off the grandstand, the 64-table poker room is nearly full, with people playing Texas Hold'em, three-card poker, Omaha Hold'em, and stud poker. It's dark and cool, a reprieve from the relentless humidity outside and waitresses bustle by with trays of concession food and drinks. The state says card rooms, now allowed only at Greyhound Racing and Horse Tracks, and at several facilities that allow wagering on Hialeah, had gross receipts of $157 million in 2016-17. That's up from $91 million in 2007-08. The poker room in Palm Beach opened in 1997. In the most recent fiscal year, the track had a betting handle of nearly $38 million from dog racing while recording nearly $15 million in card room gross receipts. As it currently stands, Florida kennel clubs can't operate their profitable card rooms without live greyhound racing. Amendment 13 would decouple racing from other forms of gambling, allowing the racetracks to keep their card rooms without the presence of the greyhounds. Joe Rooney says his track would reconfigure its footprint, sell most of its 19 acres to developers, and reduce its current staff of 600 to about 100. The prospect has meant a lot of sleepless nights for Alton Butler, who has worked at the Palm Beach Kennel Club for 17 years. He started as a lead-out, one of the workers who lead the greyhounds on a leash from the holding area, or ginny pit as it's called, to the starting gate. Inside the Ginny Pit, two state inspectors gather urine samples from the dogs to test for the presence of performance-enhancing drugs. Now Butler is a race official, serving as a traffic cop of sorts, lining the dogs up before post time and checking the tattooed identification numbers inside their ears to ensure bettors are wagering on the right greyhounds. If Amendment 13 passes, the father of nine doesn't know what he'll do. I'm 41 years old and not looking forward to starting over again, he says. Over 90 private greyhound adoption groups in the United States and Canada have formed a coalition, Greyhound Adopters for Racing, to oppose Amendment 13. These groups say that, through their experience adopting and fostering former racing greyhounds, they know allegations of cruel and human treatment are false, and they believe the continuation of racing is in the best interests of the breed. The coalition also says statistics cited by anti-racing groups such as Grey2K USA that a dog dies every three days at a Florida racetrack 
are being used in isolation as an effort to mislead voters. It's what we like to call decontextualizing, says John Parker, an attorney who lives in Moreland, Georgia, and serves as vice president of the coalition. In 1998, Parker started Southeast Greyhound Adoption and estimates he's adopted out more than 2,800 racing greyhounds, most from tracks in Florida. Generally, the dogs we received were in good shape, Parker says. The ones with ticks and fleas were the exception. Not everybody in racing is perfect. Three hours north of West Palm Beach, the barking starts at A.J. Grant's kennel as soon as visitors approach the door. Eighty dogs are housed in the low-slung concrete building in stacked carpet-lined crates, and they're all eager to say hello. Grant and trainer Kathy Lacasse tell stories about each of the dogs, how they got their names, their best race, the foster home they'll go to after retirement. Outside, in two large turnout pens, Grant says the dogs are let out for two and a half hours early in the morning, again for an hour mid-morning, and early afternoon, then from 6 to 8 p.m., with an hour of sprints built in after the morning turnout. On non-race days, they spend the rest of the day and night in their crates. Grant and Lacasse strongly deny claims from animal rights groups that racing greyhounds are confined for up to 23 hours a day. We only get paid if they run first through fourth, so if they're not fed well, if they're not healthy, if they're not happy, if they're not in good condition, they're not going to make any money, and we're not going to get paid. So it's only common sense that these dogs are healthy and happy, says Lacasse. The kennel facilities are subject to unscheduled inspections by the state and Seminole County officials, including on the day outside the lines visited. The dogs are friendly and quick to offer hand licks and nuzzles, which Grant cites as further proof the dogs are not mistreated. Twenty, thirty years ago, the dogs were treated as a commodity, as a product, but not anymore, he says. Why would I put a dog down if I can call a rescue and they'll be here within a day, he asks. He's also concerned about how shelters and adoption groups will handle the influx of the 8,000 dogs actively racing in the state, along with what he estimates are 7,000 more in training. Why is there not a provision for the dogs in the bill if this is actually about the welfare of animals, he asks. After greyhound racing, we don't have any income, so it's going to come out of our pockets to take care of these dogs, and we will, he adds. Kurt Trechak, a trainer affiliated with the Palm Beach Kennel Club, says he and others have grown weary of being vilified by groups like Grey 2K USA. I take pride in the condition of my kennel and the condition of my dogs, he says. He was eager to show his kennel to outside the lines to help dispel allegations of mistreatment. But officials at the Palm Beach Kennel Club denied access, citing a potential fine from the state for allowing unlicensed people into the facilities. Instead, Trechak shares videos of his dogs. He shows their grooming bench, the food preparation area, and a video of a fawn-colored greyhound leaning out of her kennel and onto his shoulders, in what he describes as their good-morning hug. They're more like family to me than my own family, he says. Since its formation in 2001, Grey 2K USA, a Massachusetts-based animal rights group, has lobbied against greyhound racing in five states that ended the sport. As of late September, the group spent $2.8 million on TV ad buys, 
in an effort to sway Florida residents to vote yes on Amendment 13. We've been in a bare-knuckle fight with an incredibly powerful industry for nearly 20 years, says Carrie Thiel, the group's executive director, who describes the Florida battle as the most significant thing I will do in my lifetime. Carrie and other opponents of racing say the dog situation is too dire to worry about job losses or to wait for the market to decide the fate of the sport. He cites a state report reviewed by Outside the Lines that shows 485 greyhound deaths from Florida tracks between May 2013 and May 2018. In the report labeled Death Report, the causes of death reads like a grim litany of the dangers involved in racing a pack of eight dogs at more than 40 miles per hour around a tight oval. Found dead in crate, dog fell during race and broke his back, was euthanized at trainer's request, hit rail. These are just some of the entries. Parker, the racing supporter, points out that those deaths represent a small fraction of the tens of thousands of greyhounds that raced on Florida tracks during that same span. Some dogs, he notes, simply died of illness. I find that argument strange, Thiel says. They're constantly looking for ways to rationalize away. It's pretty callous. Thiel says his organization's analysis of Florida greyhound deaths revealed that 57% of the fatalities were directly due to racing. Florida, like other states, has also had alarming, if isolated, cases of greyhound abuse. In October 2011, trainer Ronald Williams was convicted of animal cruelty and sentenced to five years in prison when state inspectors found 32 of his greyhounds dead from starvation inside his kennel at Ebro Greyhound Park. Investigators found dog food rotting in a broken freezer and several greyhounds with duct tape wound around their jaws and necks. Trainers, including Tretjak, insist those horrific discoveries are outliers and shouldn't be used to condemn an entire industry. Back in Loxahatchee Groves, Bart limps heavily toward a patch of shade where ten or so other greyhounds lay flopped in the grass. Straitman, now a board member for Grey 2K USA, believes public sentiment is on her side. She's been touring the state in recent weeks, making public appearances in the run-up to Election Day. It will be historic, she says. It will save thousands and thousands of dogs of being bred into cruelty. A few miles away at Palm Beach Kennel Club, the starting bell rings, and eight of the fastest dogs in the country explode out of the gate. They sprint in an all-out chase for the lure, and then... As quickly as it began, the race is over. The dogs bark and pace at the edge of the rail where the lure tucks away. They're unaware of the longer, larger race that surrounds them, the one for the future of the sport. Their fates, along with those of all involved, now rest with voters. Joining me now is ESPN's John Barr and Tanya Malinowski. Thank you both for your time. Thank Good you. Good to be here. So this, first of all, this story seems like it's interesting. You have one issue and two people, two sides, I'm sorry, not people, two groups coming at it completely differently. You have one side saying that they're celebrating these animals by how they treat them, letting them run, and the other one saying, like, no, you're not, and we need to save them. So I guess um, uh, regardless of all that, 
it does seem like that this is an industry in peril. So first question, John, I'll ask you is, regardless of Amendment 13, this doesn't seem like an industry that is coming back regardless of what happens. No, that's, the trend has certainly been downward for several years. You know, the, the amount of money bet on Greyhound racing covers around $500 million. And in the early 90s, it was more than $3 billion. That's nationwide. And in Florida, the, the numbers are reflective of a, of a similar decline. And the reality is, if you spoke to a number of track owners in Florida, uh, Greyhound racing track owners in Florida, uh, they would probably tell you that they wouldn't mind seeing Greyhound Racing leave. Mm-hmm. The problem is the way the state law is now written, they have to have the presence of Greyhound Racing to justify the existence of their profitable card rooms where p- people play poker. Mm-hmm. You can't have the poker without the Greyhound Racing. So what this amendment would do is it would decouple Greyhound Racing from the card rooms, meaning they could keep the card rooms, but they'd have to get rid of Greyhound Racing. Uh, but yes, the the trend is certainly in the downward direction as far as incoming revenue from Greyhound Racing. Now, well, no one's advocate, no one's like advocating anyone lose their job necessarily. Like Tanya, would you say that this, isn't this a form of like capitalism of like supply and demand, where you know this isn't people coming down an industry, this is just an industry that's going away? Yeah, I would say that. The the track owners and kennel owners will argue that the reason it's going away is because there's not as much publicity and um, event space and sort of like the spectacle around Greyhound Racing that there once was. And they argue that if that promotional money comes back and if the industry and the tracks really invest in the Greyhound Racing uh, in the way that they do with card rooms, mm-hmm. that the industry will sort of come back. But you know, we talked to Joe Rooney at Palm Beach Kennel Club, and, and his argument is that um, the market is sort of dictating that, and it is a capitalism thing, and he would just prefer to see the decision to remove Greyhound Racing as a market-driven decision uh, as opposed to one that was legislatively put on them. Now, John, more than once in the story, uh, it seems it's you you find someone in the industry who essentially says, as far as mistreatment, like why would we be cruel to our paycheck? Like these, like if we're not nice to these dogs, like we don't get paid. But the, but the other side of that is you have like, you open with uh, Sonia's statement about her dog filled house disagrees where it seems like, well, yes, uh, they would not want to be cruel to their paycheck. But once that dog is no longer a paycheck for them, that's when sort of the mistreatment comes in. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and, 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 you know, a good point to raise is that nobody really knows definitively what happens to dogs when they're done racing in Florida. You know, the greyhound racing industry says more than 90% of racing greyhounds get adopted out. But to hear Sonia Strayman tell it, she was part of sort of this secret solution where she would take in dogs from mostly from Palm Beach Kennel Club that had broken bones, broken legs, broken backs. Uh, and she would rescue them in some cases. Uh, these are dogs that were sent by trainers to vets to be euthanized, to be put down. And in a number of instances, Sonia said she she would rescue those dogs. She uh, wound up uh, taking in and adopting out more than 2,300 mm-hmm. racing dogs. Um, but... You know, I think the thing Tanya and I uh, experienced, and we both sort of experienced it together, was 
just this sense of, you know, there's two markedly different descriptions of the degree of abuse. You know, Mm -hmm. you've got Sonia who says that these dogs are just treated horribly, kept in their crates 23 hours a day, you know, breaking bones from racing, dying in their crates in some instances. Mm -hmm. And then you've got these trainers who just paint a completely different picture of the industry who say their dogs aren't kept in crates that long at all, that these are gross uh, exaggerations and mischaracterizations of the way they, they treat their dogs and, and that, you know, they, they tr- the dogs have a good life. So the challenge was in, in presenting both sides and uh, essentially allowing the reader to decide, you know, wh- which is the more accurate portrayal. Now, Tanya, how would you just uh, explain away that one of the things I found was interesting where you go back to the trainers uh, that was just being mentioned. Some seem very willing to show you, like, I want to show you this and that in my facility. But then there was, oh, you can't come in because there's like regulations or laws that you're not allowed to be an outsider in the facility. Why why actually would that be on the books that they could you couldn't see it? Um, I'm not sure where the original, you do have to be licensed to go back to visit the kennels. Um, Mm -hmm. When I went back at Stanford Orlando, there was a sort of a security checkpoint where you had to sign in, show your driver's license. Um, It's still not entirely, the the kennel owners and trainers themselves are willing to be transparent, at least the ones that we met. Um, Several that I talked to at Stanford Orlando were very open about wanting to show us their kennels. They did mention that because this vote is so critical to their livelihood and the sport that they love, that um, if the state of Florida should impose a fine, that the Florida Greyhound Association is willing to accept that fine um, and pay for it in an effort to get reporters and get photographers back in the kennels and show the public and show Florida voters um, exactly what these greyhounds lives are like and what the facilities that they live in are like. Um, Palm Beach Kennel Club was a little bit more strict in adhering to that Florida regulation. Um, And although I'm not sure of the origin of that regulation, um, they weren't as willing to pay the fine uh, as Sanford Orlando was in our experience. Now, going back to what John was saying about the numbers and some of the injured dogs, Tanya, um, while they were very willing to show you these kennels, did you get a feel for what some of these trainers, like were they able to explain to you what they do and what the conditions are like for a dog that does get injured under their care. Yes, they were willing to to talk about the protocol for when a dog gets injured and whether or not, you know, depending on the kennel owner, depending on the individual dog owner, um, it's sort of a case-by-case basis of of who actually pays for the surgery and the rehab, Mm -hmm. at least in our experience. But back to what John was saying, the real... um, part that was challenging in in the telling of the story is that there really is no regulation or oversight. There's no sort of mandate about what should happen when a dog is injured. Mm -hmm. So because it's a case-by-case basis, it really makes it hard to fully get a really rich and deep understanding of of the number of injuries uh, in greyhound racing and sort of the protocol of what happens when a dog does unfortunately get injured. As far as, uh, John, like with public opinion on this, like, what is the difference between the perception, in your opinion, of this and has has horse racing ever come up where like they kind of make any parallels between the two? Well, oddly enough, a number of Sonia Straitman has uh, 
in recent weeks been traveling around the state of Florida speaking in, at debates and doing media interviews. And a number of people uh, from the Florida Greyhound Association have brought up polo. Uh, her husband actually uh, manages the, uh, a polo farm for mm-hmm. um, a wealthy Floridian. Um, and this is a very personal uh, subject for Sonia because her 17-year-old son, Donovan, actually died in a polo accident. Mm-hmm. And uh, she sees that the fact that they're bringing up polo as being cruel to horses as a, uh, as a very personal attack on her. Uh, by and large, people, I mean, the, the parallel to horse racing came up uh, within the context of, you know, look, horse racing was the sport of kings, mm-hmm. and it no longer has the stature that it once did. You know, right. unless there's a horse that's bound for the Triple Crown, you know, it just doesn't captivate the sporting public's attention the way it once did. And I think that's sort of where the parallel is with it, with greyhound racing, as, as far as Injuries and, and, and fatalities, you know, it, it, it really boils down to a moral question. There, there are uh, records that uh, document all greyhound deaths. There's, mm-hmm. there's something called the death report, which kind of has this horrible name. Yeah. But, but the, the death report does detail how nearly 500 dogs died over a five-year period and when you read it, it's pretty tough reading. You know, there's a lot of entries that just say found dead in crate or broke leg and trainer recommended dog be put, euthanized right. or, or hit rail. I mean, these, these are the descriptions that are entered to, you know, basically describe how these dogs died. And so you have to ask yourself, okay, is that acceptable? You, you measure that by the tens of thousands, and it is tens of thousands. I mean, right now there are 8,000 dogs racing in Florida, another mm-hmm. 7,000 in training. So is 500 too many when measured against the tens of thousands of dogs that raced over that time period? I don't know the answer to that. Animal rights? What I would, But then, Tanya, the question I would have then is, should the answer that the state of Florida come out as like, that is too many. The breeders bring, do bring up an interesting question. Like, is this adoption network that's in, that's loosely in place? Like, are they prepared to handle this influx of dogs? Should this amendment pass? Uh, The short answer to that is that we really don't know. Unfortunately, there's um, each side that has a different answer. Um, The the tracks and kennel owners uh, and trainers will say, no, they can't, and that the shelters themselves, um, even if they do accommodate, that would come at the euthanization of dogs that have been in those shelters for a long time. Mm-hmm. The adoption organizations, um, over 90 of them in the state of Florida and beyond, have formed a coalition in opposition to Amendment 13. Um, they haven't really weighed in on the influx of dogs should the sport be outlawed in the state of Florida, um, but the people who, the Great 2K organization and some of the People um, supporting Amendment 13 do say that the influx of dogs is not an issue at all and that dispersing them throughout the country would, um, there would be more than enough room in shelters and different fosters and organizations like that to accommodate the dogs. Tanya, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. As you point out in the story with the vast amount of greyhound racing that still, that occurs in Florida, as far as what's left in the country, is this now considered by many as a fight for the whole sports life where in a way that 
this is the biggest domino to fall. Should Florida pass this amendment, the future of Greyhound racing is in several years, it will be just completely gone. Well, Carrie Hill of Great 2K USA, uh, the group that is actively campaigning to end Greyhound racing in Florida, likens this to getting rid of horse racing in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. It's that big a deal. Yeah. 11 of the 17 Greyhound racing tracks in this country are in Florida. Uh, Palm Beach Kennel Club is seen as sort of the crown jewel of the Greyhound racing scene. There's another very uh, successful track in Arkansas called Southland, Mm -hmm. which actually pays some of the largest purses in the country, um, in large part because those purses are supplemented by casino revenues. Uh, But the reality is if Greyhound racing goes away in Florida, most most people, not all, but most people see it as a death blow to the entire industry. And, but then again, in as far as like the industry though, it goes, the point I keep coming back to as I read this in, as I mentioned earlier with capitalism, like in the end, it seems that the only losers, if you want to call it here, would be the people who make their livelihood from this. And the difference between finding a new job and conditions for like a living animal, it's really not as like and or type on a scale as people may think it is. Well, yeah, look, and and people have taken different stances as to just how many jobs would be impacted. But the reality is there are a lot of jobs that rely uh, that, you know, that make that Greyhound racing industry go. Mm-hmm. You know, people at the betting windows, servers, mostly service industry jobs. But then you've got you've got trainers. You've got people who are handling the dogs to get them out to the track. You've got people who maintain the track, you know, and at the case of in the case of Palm Beach Kennel Club, Joe Rooney, who's the you know the grandson of the founding owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Rooney uh, says that they'd probably go from about 600 employees down to 100. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's 500 people who would be out of a job. And those are real people making, uh, trying to make a go of it. So, you know, that's the other side of this. But to your point, is it just capitalism at work? Yes, on some some degree it is. But it's also very much become this political fight. And, you know, the folks from Great 2K USA, they believe this is truly a, a watershed moment in the animal rights uh, movement uh, where voters are going to say, you know, yes, we actually will take a stand and put an end to what they consider to be a cruel industry. Or, no, we really don't care. We want to preserve the, the tradition. It's interesting when you say that with tradition and fighting and also in how they throw out, like, you know, 500 jobs lost. But it seems that, you know, the uh, public opinion was not upset with the explosion of travel sites on the Internet closing travel agencies downtown or the amount of people that, you know, may like lose their jobs at printing factories because people don't print as many newspapers or magazines as much as they used to. Where, yeah. Well, and, and last time I checked, we're not immune to conversations about the, the forces of the economy, but look, uh, yeah. I mean, these are conversations that are going on in many different industries. Uh, this just happens to have the emotionally charged component of you know, the, the overarching question, is this cruel to the dogs? Right. Um, you know, and another thing that I'll bring up is those adoption agencies that actually have banded together 
in opposition to Amendment 13, in other words, they don't want it to pass, they want to continue Greyhound racing, they believe strongly that racing, even with its flaws, has helped maintain the breed. Mm-hmm. And there are some people who believe that like the breed of greyhounds will suffer if greyhound racing goes away. Uh, you know, the folks on the animal rights side would say the breed will continue, and it's certainly not worth the uh, fatalities and the injuries uh, in order to preserve this remarkable animal that can travel at speeds that are fairly breathtaking. If you've never seen a dog race, and I hadn't until yeah. reporting this story, it's really something to see them uh, you know, hurtling down the track on the straightaway where they get they go more than 40 miles per hour. Wow. But, but a lot of these dogs are around two years old. Uh, their bones aren't completely formed. Mm-hmm. And when they hit turns at those speeds, the stress that is put on their joints is so incredible that sometimes their legs just shatter. And, and that's what's happened in, in hundreds of cases through the years. So my last question for you, John, is where are where. Where are the polls on this? Like, what is the consensus in Florida? We've, I mean, we've we've heard from the the people that are very vocally behind it and very vocally opposed to it. But where are the polls on this amendment? Well, both sides have done their own polling, and that you know, so you sort of have to take those polls and filter them through the respective lenses. Uh, Carrie Thiel of Great Two K USA told us that they've done a number of different polls. Uh, one where they just sort of asked this overarching question of, of, of whether greyhound racing should be um, banned. Uh, and then another where they give voters some bullet points that are reflective of the reality of the industry and what he perceives to be the brutality of the industry. And then they, mm-hmm. they re-ask the question. And when they do that, you know, in other words, when the informed voter votes, he says that they're polling around uh, in, in 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 the high 60s mm-hmm. in in support of the amendment in other words people would vote to ban racing right for the greyhound association on the on the flip side says that they don't have 60% of the vote 60% is a high bar sure and you know but but in this i should mention that on this point this is not a conservative and liberal issue. Right. You have people like Pamela Bondi, who's the attorney general of the state of Florida, a frequent contributor to Fox News, a noted conservative who was pushing for this constitutional amendment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a number of conservatives running for election within the state of Florida who've thrown their weight behind the passage of Amendment 13. Mm-hmm. So we'll see what happens. Uh, but right now there are differing polls. And if this last election taught us anything, it's that, boy, how reliable are polls? Yeah. Yeah. The, if you if you don't want the numbers to, to lie for you, like make sure the numbers say what you want to say, I guess, right? Yep. So I guess that's the one, the one number that we have left is the one number that we'll have to see, and that's on election day. November 6th. It all boils down to November 6th. It's, uh, it's going to be a decisive moment for the industry. And and look, if if it doesn't pass on November sixth, that doesn't mean greyhound racing isn't going to go away. It just not might not be on the timetable that animal rights activists would like. Well, we'll definitely be watching out for that, John. Thank you so much for your time. A great story. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Devil Truck Stories podcasts.